broadcasting live from the phx.fm studio in phoenix arizona it's time for valley business radio spotlighting the valley's best businesses and the people who lead them Hello and welcome to Valley Business Radio, where we tell the stories that traditional media tends to ignore and help connect you to the right people. I'm your host, Dr. Adrian McIntyre. I'm joined in the studio today by Alex Devereaux, founder and principal consultant of the Devereaux Group. Welcome, Alex. Thank you, Adrian. Glad to be on board today. Well, I'm really glad you could make it in for the show. We met and had a brief conversation at an event put on by the Global Chamber. And right away, I instantly knew that you were the kind of person who has deep insights and experience that would be very interesting for our audience uh, to get to know you and your work. Why don't you start us off with a bit of an introduction? Tell us a little bit about the Devereaux Group and how you serve folks. Well, I guess the Devereaux Group um, is, well, started for a, a number of years now back, I'd say maybe about 30 years when I started my career. Uh, initially as an engineer, I thought maybe just solving problems in the area of, um, uh, you know, let's see, it was architecture. And then, of course, it went from architecture to, to, to structures, you know, building high-rise buildings to, you know, oh, what about uh, working on a fighter jet plane. And so I ended up working on the F-16 program. And then I decided, well, you know, enough with, you know, um, high-powered, uh, you know, weapons. Maybe I need to focus on high-temperature, you know, systems. And so I designed high-temperature systems for uh, BP, uh, for the petrochemical industry, the steel industry, and ceramic industries. And and then, of course, uh, you know, my wife said to me, hey, I got a friend who has a problem and I need you to help him. I'm going, what is, what's the problem? Well, he's on the verge of bankruptcy. I'm going, I don't know anything about that. That's a high temperature situation. It's a very high temperature situation. You know, the fact that you're already under pressure to begin with, you know, having a conversation before you have a conversation. And so then I said, all right, fine. Let me talk to him. I talked to him. Found out that he was doing some things in his business that he, he needed to change. And and I said, uh, well, you know, this is just a problem for me to solve. And and that's how it started. You know, I started making that transition. This is something that I have come to learn. Uh, I, I'm not an engineer. Uh, I am not a disciplined enough <laughs> thinker uh, for that kind of work. Uh, but I am a curious person and a creative problem solver. And I have come to realize that I have a lot in common with engineers, although we might approach solutions differently. We certainly have different technical skill sets. Right. But I have come through interviews in this studio and through, you know, activities in the world to really appreciate the problem solving ability and the eagerness to kind of get in there and figure things out. So it doesn't sound at all incongruous to me that you could go from F-16s to fixing business problems. That makes a lot of sense. Well, it, it does, but then there's the other factor. As long as you're focused on process, it's fine. But then there's this thing called people. People. And, and you know, so for engineers, they, they're known for their wonderful people skills, right? Uh, okay, I'm being facetious. But nonetheless, you know, I had to make the transition from, from, from solving systems, systemic problems to people and systemic problems. And so that made my, that's what makes the, that's the foundation of what I do with my consulting company is that I've solved both people and systemic problems in a very interdependent way. You know, yes. so there's interdependencies and then, of course, address variables that that come up and surface, you know, in the most unpredictable ways and being able to, to kind of like make that transition. And that's what I do. I, I think that's an essential point to underline, which is that you can optimize systems and processes and workflow and all the rest. 
and yet it's the human element. And people problems become profit problems very quickly. Right, right. Tell me about the kind of clients that you most enjoy working with and the kinds of issues they're typically having when they reach out or first connect with you. Well, you know, that's a, that's a good question. Usually I get, the, oh, you know, what's your sweet spot? You know, I get that question asked all the time. And of course, you know, that's just a, that's something that people in the industry use. But, but, you know, for me is that because I come from a place of, of, of problem solving, both from a systemic standpoint and also a people standpoint, is that really, it's all about motivated people. I need a motivated, I need a motivated, uh, you know, uh, uh, owner to change. I need a, a, a motivated executive team that wants to change. I need, ex- and then of course, I can help the people down below because they're, they're receiving instructions from the people above. And if I can get the people above excited about change, then I can get the people below excited about change and everybody wins. And that's what it's all about. So it is a, it is not a zero sum relationship. In fact, it is a non-zero sum relationship that I try to cultivate with any client that I work work with. One plus one plus one equals many. Many. Yes. Yes. That's fascinating. I was just having a conversation with a founder here in the Valley last night about the solution that he's developing in his company. And I said, well, listen, this sounds really great, except for your competition is not somebody else providing the solution. Your competition is our human ability to tolerate the unworkability of our lives. People are already just putting up with the, the very problem that your problem solves. And unless they're willing and like, unless that becomes urgent, they're motivated. Right. Exactly as you right. were saying. Absolutely. They're not going to buy. You could have the best solution in the world. Best solution. And we will just continue to be okay with the unworkability of the way things are unless it's painful enough. You're absolutely correct. And that's what we learned bottom line after a few years of doing this, right? You know, having clients that, that, that you know, are willing to face the truth. You know, you got to be honest first and say, look, you know what? I have a problem. Do we agree you have a problem? Yes, I have a problem. Yes, you go. Okay, fine. That's good. Yeah. They said, well, gee, I'm ashamed. I'm, a, you know, because I have a problem. And I said, there's no shame here because things are changing all the time. And, and one of the things I, I actually point out to people, I said, look, you know what? This is a thing called Moore's Law, Moore's Rule. It said he, Moore has taken over your life, you know. And, and, and so, for the non-math nerds or engineering folks, <laughs> uh, d- describe Moore's Law. Moore's Law is basically Dr. Moore back in, uh, you know, Dr. Moore is basically one of the founders of Intel. Yeah, he announced at a conference that, you know, within, uh, in about 68, 69, he said within, you know, every 18 months or two years. You know, technology, resistor technology, transistor, transistor technology will change, multiply. Well, that's an exponential relationship. Every 18 months. Yeah. I, I remember the corollary was, uh, you know, I don't know if you know John Dvorak, who, who wrote for many years, maybe still does, uh, for PC Magazine in, in California. But he said the corollary to Moore's Law is that the computer that you want will always cost $3,000. Right. Because the latest, newest thing right, is always right, right. so. Yes, uh, technology increases, capabilities increase, uh, but that creates that. On the one hand, we could celebrate oh, innovation, advancement, progress. Right, that very tricky word for humans, but that creates problems, challenges. Right. So how does that impact a company, and 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 what do you do about it? What happens is this, you know, this, sometimes you make reference to, you've heard years ago, they introduced the concept of the hockey stick, you know, 
transition, right? And that's where I want to say, I want to scale, I want to scale, I want to scale. Well, that's good news. The bad news is that when you reach the inflection point, the inflection point is when the stick starts to, you know, you move up. Right. You know, the curve changes the from curve gradual to very to gradual, steep. Very steep. Yeah. You know, when you start making that transition, it's a new ball game. And so if you don't understand the the life cycle of a company, then, you know, what happens is that you're always either lagging behind the process. And that's why, you know, some of the, the concepts or the 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 uh, stereotypes we have with entrepreneurs, for example, you know, entrepreneur, you know, it's like, you know, at some point, you know, he's he's going to we have to decide if we're going to keep him or, or get or, or replace him in some way. You know, someone that can be more administrative, they can manage the business in a different way. The, the founder, so, CEO and the stable Right. Growth CEO are often not the same human being. Uh, and it's difficult. You know, it's a difficult situation, difficult transition. So it has to be managed. You know, it's like you, you have to think about it. If you want to, as an entrepreneur, if you want to stay in your business early on and manage your business, you have to prepare yourself for growth and change. Okay. And if you're not prepared for that change, there's a problem. Now yeah. you're fighting against your team, et cetera. And then the things, the people that you need to have in place to, to continue to grow and develop. On the other hand, if you if you have a difficulty of making that shift, then be okay with bringing in someone that has a, a different skill set that's that's functional in that difference in that part of the cycle that requires that resiliency from an administrative standpoint, and then also from a vision standpoint. You know, being able to support the vision with uh, with processes, et cetera. And so, one of the things we also do is we help companies document their process so that they they can actually you know they can see what they're doing, and then of course they make improvements or changes. They can actually share. So onboarding is another aspect of what we address in terms of saying, you know, you have this with managers. We have, we have managers that you know, maybe get employed. And then, of course, at about six months, if things aren't working well for them, guess what they're doing? They're starting to position for the next opportunity. So you the lifespan of, an, of, of a manager or an employee in general can be somewhere between six months to a year, year and a half. Then so what happens when you're in that transition of growth, you know, all that disruption doesn't have the right minds that you need in place to to be able to support your infrastructure expanding and growing. And that's what we we try to do is to try to prepare them for that. Can you walk us through an example of, of appropriately animized and whatever else you need to do to to discuss it of of a client in a situation? Because one of the things, I've, Alex, is so critical about the kind of work you do is I, 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 I'm intuiting from this, you need to get in there. You need to get under the hood. You need to have real conversations with people. You mentioned a little bit ago about, you know, they need to tell the truth to themselves about the situation right. and, and where they're right. at. Could you give us a, a kind of a, a little case study, if you will, of a company that was struggling, uh, how you engaged with them and the way that process unfolded and the results they got? So, you know, the good news about what, what, what we do is that um, every problem is not exactly the same. That's right. Know? Every right? time. So, but, but what happens is this, you know, um, client comes to us and says, oh, you know, we, we're having problems with, you know, conversions, you know, with our leads. And said, okay, that's not a problem. Um, tell, them, tell us a little more about what your problem is. They say, well, look, you know what? Um, you know, a marketing, uh, you know, director is concerned about the sales team's ability to convert leads. Okay, that's interesting. So from my point of view, it's like, okay, well, I wonder why marketing is feeling that way. And I wonder why the sales team 
can't convert. They why she thinks they can't convert. And so have conversations with them, have a conversations with, you know, the CEO, like what's what's important for you, et cetera. And then when what happens is that, you know, we we take a look at the different sides. And so there's one situation we had with the client brought us in for that very reason. Uh, we said, well, look, you know what? You need to look at conversion rates. You want to improve your conversion rates. And then you also want to, um, you know, be confident with your sales team. You know, there's other problems. You know, we can improve conversion rates, but if the sales team cannot convert the leads that you bring in, it's a problem. And if the if she, if they're if she's being measured, for example, if it's she or he could be his marketing manager, if he's being measured based on MQL, which is marketing quality leads, number of marketing quality leads to generate versus sales quali- uh, qualified leads, et cetera, then you know how does she justify her own position? And so what we said, well, look, we need to look at both. And so what we did was we in, we introduced a process that enabled us to be able to have conversations with marketing team, the sales team, and then, of course, management team, and then say, okay, based on what we're seeing here, this is what we need to do. Talk to the marketing manager for, or the sales manager, for example, and he said, uh, look, you know what? We didn't tell him this, but we're saying in, indirectly that your marketing your, your, uh, director is not confident in your team's ability to convert these leads. Okay, so now what do we do? Um, I said, look, is it possible for you to maybe consider reducing your your sales cycles? What's your sales cycle? Uh, eleven weeks. All right. Can you can you take that from eleven weeks to five weeks? He says no. <laughs> okay. Why? And then of course he went through this process. Right. And that's so good because the real the answer is not what's interesting. It's what's behind the answer. Right. Help me understand. Right. Why? No, we can't cut the sales cycle from 11 weeks to five. Why? So we had a guy that typically uh, is, is very articulate and he could you know, spend two, two hours with you arguing a point and, and never resolving it, right? So I said, look, you know, I, we have a process that we use for conflict resolution, you know, uh, because, uh, you know, that's always the issue, right? So, so I, I kind of walked him through this process because at this time now, we, we have them in session when this is happening. So we have a pre-intensive, we do some things in the front end, you know, intensive where we actually have face-to-face engagement for about two and a half days. And then we have post-intensive where we support and change manager back end. So we're in this session with all the different managers in the room. And I said, okay, fine, you know, 11 weeks. All right, fine. Five weeks you think is impossible. Okay, fine. So take him through the process. Normally it takes two hours to talk to this guy. 45 minutes, we're able to get him to agree. Hey, is it possible for us to do this? Yes. Okay. So so now marketing manager is happy. Why? Conversion issue is, is off the table right now. And now they can just simply focus on what we need to do with the sales team for them to support them in effectively doing that. And that's what we do with the sales team. So we're working with both marketing team, sales team, et cetera, but we also engage other folks that support that process that enable them to more effectively support what's actually going to happen. And if they can do that, they can actually, you know, almost double their revenue for the next year. There's a few things in there. I think it's such a great example. I'd love to unpack them because one thing is I'm hearing an, an unintended benefit, which is also a proof point. Right. Is for everyone in the room seeing that this guy who normally takes two hours got to his resolution in 45 minutes. Right. That has to be something that somebody's, it's not a KPI in the traditional, right, but everybody right, right. knows like, oh. Well, if you've ever been in a, a four-hour uh, management uh, meeting and, oh, and, and and have made no decisions, you know, and how you felt afterwards, you know, you felt like you needed to go to a spa, you know, get a massage, et cetera, because it's the most grueling experience, right? But if you can, if you know, if you can come to some resolution, that really helps tremendously. The CFO is in the room, right? CFO says, hmm, 
We've never been able to get this guy to to uh, to to make a, a you know a commitment to anything within two hours. So now all of a sudden, forty five minutes, and he was clocking and timing it. Four or five minutes, and we could resolve. Everybody was happy. Everybody was still energetic. It's like, oh wow, we actually got a, res- a resolution here, and we've learned some things at the same time. Now let's dial in the focus a little bit more because I love what you said about how it all resolves to some form of conflict resolution, communication improvement, trust building. Like there's so many things in the quote unquote soft realm, which I would call the vital realm of of human experience. Uh, So initially as you're presenting this example, I'm thinking that this is going to be some sort of a marketing solution or a sales improvement solution, sales enablement type thing. But really what it comes down to is you got to deal with the disconnect, the silos, the lack of trust, the fact that what team A calls a lead, team B probably says isn't a lead. Sales team, as we hear many times, might say, well, marketing's doing a bunch of stuff, but we got to actually create our own leads because we can't work with what they have, et cetera, et cetera. And what you start with or what you end up with or what you take them through is a human development process. You'll get to the marketing and sales application. What happens in that, like describe some, I know you sure have a toolkit with a lot of different methods, but what are you dealing with as you deal with conflict resolution in that kind of environment? Well, first of all, I think you have to have an environmentally safe environment to begin with. That's that's the bottom line. You know, people aren't going to be honest in in a in a very uh, caustic, uh, very you know negative environment. Any negativity towards change, et cetera, they're they're just not going to feel safe. And as and so safety's first. Uh, to me, it's it's primary for all. That's why when we come into uh, an organization, our intention is not to our intention is not to get rid of people, which is what percip- is perceived by most people with consultants. Oh, the consultants coming, but they get ready to get rid of people. They were getting ready to downsize, et cetera. You know, our approach is this: you're in business to grow, not to fail or not to reduce. And so, when companies reduce their 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 ranks, that that creates an environmentally unsafe environment to begin with, and has adverse effects to, with the environment uh, with the organization later. It's this almost like the effect of, of P- PTSD, if you will. If anyone has ever gone through a, a, a merger situation, especially with a large company, and it takes about a year for due diligence to be resolved, you know, that is a very taunting, very, very daunting experience and very, un, you know, disturbing experience. So what we try to do first in the room is make sure it's environmentally safe. That everybody said, look, you know what? Anything you you share here is 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 based on progress. The focus is on progress, not on denigrating, not on making someone feel unsafe or threatened because they're being honest. So the honesty is the most important thing. Let's talk about that and get real for a second because it's one thing to say that, right? And of right. course, everyone in the room is thinking to themselves, oh, right, easy to say, hard to do. I want to bring into this discussion an issue that gets a lot of lip service, which goes under the heading of diversity and inclusion. Right. The reality is, is that what it means to be safe is different for different folks right. in the room. Absolutely. Depending on the power dynamics, depending on the composition of the team, depending on what we sometimes glibly call culture, but for many people is lived experience. What it means to be a privileged white male in that room is very different than what it means to be a person of color or a person with some other form of difference, gender identity, et cetera, which has made them and continues to make them feel vulnerable historically as a group, as well as in their actual experience at that company. So 
we're walking into probably the most important minefield right. in human relations, which is Absolutely. telling the truth about the stuff that we've taken. We, in this case, meaning those of us with that white male privilege that has made this invisible right. because we've benefited from it. Right. Telling the truth about this in a way that allows us all to grow up together and do better. Right. How do you approach issues of diversity, inclusion, et cetera, uh, when you're dealing with these kind of human dynamics? It's a very important question. And, and, and of course, it's an interesting, a very powerful situation where, you know, uh, to me, it, it's, the, it's the opportunity to actualize the company in a bigger way. You know, oftentimes when you talk about transformation, for example, transformation right now, a lot of people use it as a word because it's marketable and it looks cool, et cetera. But true transformation requires mastery. But ultimately, it's about human mastery, you know. And what that means is taking human development to a level where we can see it Culturally, you know, not from a, a, a territorial, you know, focus, you know, ethnocentric, intrinsic focus where, you know, you're just locked in and say, my people this, my people that. It's us. Ultimately, it's about us. And so what we try to do is elevate the organization to a with a focus of, con of performance, you know. And so those issues may come out, but it's like, you know what? Let's table those issues right now. We're not here to psychoanalyze people. You know, we don't try to do that. What we mean by environmentally safe when we create that space is say, look, you know, what's the target goal? That's all that matters right now. You know, you have your issues. You're going to, we can't change them. You go home, you're going to be where you are and do the things you are. But when you're in this space, it's about performance. That's the common denominator. I couldn't agree with that more. And I have to say, I sometimes wonder whether we have to be careful around meritocracy. Because on the one hand, this is obvious. Like we right. should measure based on performance. We should measure based on results. Right, right, right. And there are conditions in which people perform that are unequally distributed, et cetera, right. et cetera. So I want, I want what you want. Good. I want a world that works for everyone. Absolutely. I want us all good. to do our best. Good, and good, good point, you know, about that, because what happens is that we have been focused on performance, but we've been focused on performance in a very polarized way, as opposed to focusing on performance in a collaborative way. And so so what we do with our process, we're able to help people aggregate and, and focus in such a way that what really matters and what matters is, is your safety and security, you know, and that is your ability to perform, to provide safety and security for your family, for your, for, for your environment, for your company, et cetera. And you do that collectively, you know. And so what happens is that when you're able to focus on the issues that you're not trying to solve cultural diversity issues, you're trying to solve people that are collectively interdependently coming together to, to engage in such a way that they provide safety and security for everyone in the environment, you know, and that's what's important. I love what you're saying, and I, and I love the, the benefits that this provides. It's so important. You know, you must be familiar with uh, the study that Google did a number of years ago. They called it Project Aristotle, where they set out to figure out because Google's a relatively large employer. Right, right. A right. thousand people and different right. units spread around all over the place. And they wanted to figure out, because they're a data company. Right. right. They have data on everything. They have a department of people analytics. Right. That measure everything. Right. Mm -hmm. They wanted to figure out what makes a high-performing team. And they figured it was going to be something to do with the composition and the skill sets and a variety of things. So they used their own internal resources. They brought in a bunch of external PhDs, social scientists, et cetera, to do this study. And what they found out is it has nothing to do with the composition of the team. It's not, if you get two engineers, 
and one communicator and one activator manager type, it'll work. What they found is that there was five characteristics. I don't remember all of them. I do remember the most important one, and it's exactly what you said. The degree to which there is psychological safety Hmm. on the team. Right. What does that mean? It means that people, first of all, can be themselves, whatever that is. They don't feel there's something they need to hide about who they are or how they work or how they think. And it means that the environment is supportive of uh, even actively seeking failure and mistakes. It's not even like, oh, mistakes are accepted. Mistakes are embraced. It's okay. It's encouraged because that's where innovation comes from. You can't, I was trying to tell my, my oldest son who's seven, um, who's, you know, brilliant and very sensitive and he was really struggling with something and he was mad at himself because it wasn't working. And I was trying to get him to reframe that, right? I'm not sure I was successful. Parenting is an ongoing thing, right? But I was trying to get him to understand (laughs) that this is science. How it works is every result is information, right? An experiment that fails produces valuable data. Like we're, you know, it's nothing, it's not bad that you failed. It's useful that you failed because then you get to ask what's next, but you can't have that conversation, uh, especially in a group, if you feel like you're now vulnerable because you've shown some weakness, either in your performance or in your identity or what have you. Right. You've touched on so many different aspects of, of a consulting project from the, the way you would lead a group in your intensive to the pre-intensive to the post-work, uh, so many different tools in your toolkit. I wonder if you could uh, speak to some of, the, some of the favorite things, right? Some of the things that in the course of an, you know, there's a great deal that's unknown. Right. Absolutely. Going into an environment right. and what they think is the problem and what you agree at the outset is the goal might change in the first 20 minutes right. when you get the folks actually in the room. Right. How does the pre-intensive that you mentioned factor into your approach? What happens in that? Well, that's a, that's a great question because it starts in the beginning, right? Um, I'll have to confess to you that in another life, I was an educator, for a number of years, and, and and I've learned more from my students than I, than, yeah. than I tried to deliver the best I could to my students, and and of course uh, had some successes, you know, uh, but 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 what what I probably the biggest lesson I learned in in that is is that preparation. Day one, I had a philosophy that every student that entered my classroom had an A, and it was your job to figure out how to keep that A. You know, and then I'll do whatever I could to try to help you keep that A. But basically, if I can get you close to that A, you've, you've accomplished more than you may have thought you were able to accomplish. And I, I had some people, in, you know, accomplish some incredible things as a result of that, for that, that mindset and philosophy. Now, in our pre-intensive, what we do is we, you know, everything we do in any environment is really about learning. Yeah. You know, it's just really about learning. And, and so... We, we have to, you know, I try to, we try, what we try to do is we try to help them get into a fertile learning mindset first. And, and by looking at the different aspects of what things, what, what could fall apart, what things are going on, what are all those different variables that you have in an environment that kind of challenges you and says, hey, you know, this is what, you know, I, you know, I don't want anyone to know that I had difficulty in school and I have to work extra hard to learn, right? We're learning all the time. And so the bad news about, you know, uh, some students is that they had, they had a bad, a negative 
uh, learning experience in school. And so now they're coming into a work environment that they hope that they can hide from that and not have to deal with it anymore. They're carrying that that historical experience of threats and judgment and punishment right. and all of the things. Right. I mean, I this the two books come to mind when you, when you're speaking about this, and, and I was just googling one of them to make sure I have it right. But um, the more recent one is um, Jerry Colonna's book, Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up. It's a beautiful book, but it speaks directly to this, is that we're all carrying these wounds. And, you know, it's touchy-feely to use that kind of language. Right. But at some level, we got to talk about, what are we doing out here? We are. We end up as adults right. with the scars of our earlier experience right. in school, in parenting, on the block, like all the places that have shaped our view. Right. And so what you're dealing with in the room right. at, at a company is not a blank slate of people who are up to figuring out how to optimize their process. No. Everyone is carrying something. Oh, everyone, everyone from the top bottom, you know, you know, from the top down to the bottom. And, and what's interesting is that, you know, as you were, as you were talking, I was saying to myself, okay, so how do we like, and I'm always, always thinking this way, right? How do, how do we, how do we like give them a picture of what that whole experience is? And I said, the bottom line is this, empathy. Human empathy is, is the challenge that we experience every day. And of course, as a father, you know, you're, you're managing that constantly. How do I stay balanced with my child when I'm in, I'm, my, my dysfunctions are starting to surface? And then, you know, how do I maintain that balance? And what's the impact that I have on him? And, and hopefully I don't scar him for the rest of his life because I had a bad day or a bad moment. You know, so it's really about human empathy. And it's about our ability, our willingness to be okay with being vulnerable, but at the same time, know that we can still respond. You know, if I can trust you to support me in my my lower moment, my time period, you know, or my my cycle, then, you know, you need to be able to trust me to do the same thing and be tolerant. And so what I saw, what I see, and what we try to understand, it's like all the different all the different cultures, you know, we, we think about cultures as being more ethnocentric, That's right. but we've got cultures that are created based on the aggregation of humans together that have a common uh, uh, or agreed upon agenda that becomes a culture. Yeah. Ways, so, ways of being and acting and speaking. Absolutely. Is what, it, it, as an anthropologist, I've settled on as my way of understanding this thing we call culture. It's not, you know, the 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 Samoan culture, right. the German right. culture. Right. It's There are human groups that have uh, adopted these ways of being, acting, and speaking, which are carried forward from the past, but also shape the present and the future. So they act on people as well as being changed by Absolutely. And so, you know, when, when people, people are being getting, getting tested now with their DNA, mm. you know, it's created some interesting uh, discoveries with families, right? Yeah. You know, but what's interesting about that is they're realizing that, you know what, genetically, you are a composition of multiple different cultures. So you can't say you're exclusively one culture or another. So, but what happens, and that's from a genetic standpoint, but what happens is that when you find yourself, you know, being from, let's say, for example, America, and you're in South America, and you, and all of a sudden, I just love South American food, you know, from Brazil, like for Venezuela, it's like, Wow. Oh, I'm in Japan now. I love Japanese food, right? right? You know, and you never grew up eating Japanese food, but what happens all of a sudden you realize that when you're in Japan, you're, Japan, you're Japanese. I'm getting off onto a little soapbox and I don't mind because I feel like this is super important. I often say, and I say it as often as I can, so I'll say it now. Right. Uh, the one thing that most people do not realize is that human beings 
are a single species. Right. And that biologically, there is more in common between me and you and between, you know, the the whitest Midwesterner and the darkest South Sudanese tribesmen than there is, there's more in common biologically than there is between two different types of birds. Absolutely. Or two different types of dogs. Right. Um, human beings are not like dog breeds. We are what, and, we're, and the implication of that is we are all in the same boat. And what happens to any of us happens to all of us, but we don't think that way. We don't live that way. Right. And we're, we're driven by the other part of our biology, which is scarcity and competition for resources. So when you mentioned earlier on in this conversation that this is not a zero-sum game, I thought to myself, man, I love this because nothing is really. Nothing, nothing, nothing really. Absolutely. Like, my winning doesn't have to take out of anything out of your pocket or your ability to succeed as long as I'm not stepping on people in order to do it. Right. And, you know, Adrian, you know, philosophically, that's how we approach things. Yeah, you know, I that we, we Everybody needs to win. And, and you know, and, and that means being in a mo- mindset where you know you're actualizing, you, you understand human potential. Our ability to create is what that's all about. The other book I was going to mention, which is exactly on what you're talking about, maybe you've read it, is Ben Zander's book, The Art of Possibility. Oh, yes. Benjamin Zander is the conductor of the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra, but he wrote a wonderful book, and he talks in there about having students write a letter to themselves dated a year from now describing why they deserved the A. Right. Wow. And, and based on that concept of you're starting out whole complete, perfect, right. there's nothing you lack, there's nothing you need, and we're going to grow together, Right, is how he found right. he could produce the best results as an educator, as a conductor, right. as a developer of the human Absolutely. spirit. I'm curious to know, uh, as we talk about some of your accomplishments, this is the kind of thing where some of the results can be mind-blowing because they come from a transformational process, not an incremental one. All right. So as you say, as you do in your bio, that clients have experienced between 300% and 1,000% ROI on their investment. On the one hand, you could say, oh, come on, really? I mean, that's, come on. Just like the, the, right. the guy in the meeting says, I can't take the sales cycle from 11 weeks to five weeks. It's not possible. Right. There are plenty of folks for whom the concept of a 1,000% ROI or anything between, you know, 300 and 1,000 is outside the realm of possibility. Right. And yet you live this every right. day. You Absolutely. see these results in people. Can you speak to this? Yeah, I know there's a combination of math and magic in right. everything, right. but how does this happen? By understanding the process, first of all, and of course, their investment in us is what we're talking about. That That's right. What they invest in us, we our intention is for them to pay back. We want them to, we want to pay them back for paying us within 90 days. I mean, what a deal. When you yeah. think about it, right? So, so our whole process is based on us generating a return on investment with our client because we respect and and you know the effort that is required for them to generate that revenue, you know. And so, so it's like when they see that number, you know, like for example, we talked to a client and he said, "Well, look, you know what? I'd be happy with a forty percent return on investment, forty percent return on investment." And I said, "That's great." But 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 we can give you a 300% return on investment within a 90-day time period. You know, you can't get those odds at the casino. Mm-mm. And people spend a lot of money at the casino. And the money they would invest in us would be able to give them a process to enable them to be sustainable for a long period of time. 
plus additional support. And and so and and getting a return on investment. We're the best investment in, in comparison to even a stock. Yeah, your website breaks down some of these results that using the Devro approach, clients were able to, for example, close forty-five million in North American sales from existing accounts within the first two quarters after hiring you. Uh, recover thirty million in lost revenue. Build a marketing pipeline that closed $2.5 million in SaaS revenue in 30 days from zero start. Then the same sales development representative trained his successor to close an additional $4 million using the same pipeline. What's intriguing to me about all these examples is that the, the only way you get those kind of results is by changing who people are for themselves. Right. The accounts were there. The products or services were there. Right. The teams were there. Right. And without replacing everybody wholesale, you got them to perform at a level they didn't think was possible. How? How do you move from point A to point B? And what happens in between? And if you can deal with the noise, you can get there. See, what's beautiful about being human is this. We undersell ourselves you know, we spend more of our time in minutia and, and we don't realize how we undermine ourselves. And then, of course, if you understand, and this is where, you know, what, what I've been working on in developing, these concepts have aggregated over several decades, 30 years of, of constant, you know, researching and trying to understand the goal setting process. And why isn't it that people aren't realizing their goals and what's interfering with that process? And how do you get that, get a you know, group of people to get the same thing, to achieve the same result? And how do you get them alignment, et cetera? So these are, you know, the results that we produce aren't produced because we, we picked up a book, a manual and just said, Hey, this is what you do. It's through life experience and understanding the, and living the human experience and, and understanding empathetically, you know, the challenges with humans and, and, and their ability to align and work collaboratively in a, in, a, in a very engaged way. You know, you talk about ethnography, you know, and references to anthropologists, you know, you understand the language, how important language is. Language can be very supportive and it can actually be very distortive. And in addition to that, by the way, side note, you know, I have a background in knowledge management. From the, from the human side. So that's understanding right information, right time for the right reasons. So we, we have a knowledge management approach that we take into this process. And as you know, you know, with anthropology and understanding how cultures engage, understanding how the effects of the Reynolds number and, and how people may have a limited capacity and their ability to, to maintain strong engagement with other humans for some, that's part of the, you know, the, the problem, the challenge we have with, with diversity is, is the Reynolds number. Why? You know what? I can only, my brain can only handle a close in, close engagement and close uh, relationship with a certain number of people. And, and outside of that, things get distorted. And so the challenge is how do you take that type of, that information, understand how this works in, in a, an environment that's performance oriented. Yeah. I've been on this kick for a while. When I talk to HR directors, for example, uh, I always plant this seed. I haven't, no, I don't know if it's sprouted anywhere yet, but I want them to understand that an HR organization can be on defense or on offense. Right, And for the most part, given the nature of things, they're running a defensive type line. Right. right? Um, I'm not really enough of a sports fan to even use these metaphors, but I, I'm familiar enough at the vaguest level to, to know what I'm talking about here. 
what I would love HR organizations to do is begin to own the storytelling function within the company. That's typically relegated to marketing, right? Or, or to sales in the form of case studies, proof points, et cetera. But I would love to see a progressive, forward-looking HR organization that views themselves as the repository of human knowledge and story within the organization in partnership with learning and development, right? right? right. But the human stories that are there but are hidden, the archive of right. experience, because we are motivated by story. We connect through story. We learn through story. And outside of marketing, there's almost no one who says the stories of the people in this company are our business. And I think that's an opportunity for HR. What are your thoughts? Well, you know, I actually, I, I agree with you 100% because they have human in their their reference, you know what I mean? Human resources. Some of them should change their name and just be called policy enforcement. Right, but, right. But it's, it's like, not them that we're know, talking about. Or, or should be resources for humans, you know, right. <laughs> as opposed to human resources, you yes. know, because human resources is, it references, as, as I see it, as human capital and human capital cultivation, uh, cultivation and management, which also makes reference to what you're making reference to, and that is the story's integral part of it. When you talk about the culture, the culture really changes. That's, what's, that's what I've discovered that's so interesting is your culture changes. And so the, 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 the question is this, does the culture change in a way that is constructive with respect to you either growing or declining? You know, and most people think that we just level off. No, there's there's no there's no leveling off that occurs because it's happening. You know, constantly it's in motion constantly. So you're either growing or you're or you're declining. And 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 what we try to get our clients to understand is that look, guys, when you invest in us, when we, when you when you make an investment with our services, we're supporting your growth aspect, but we're also having helping you recover from declining. And and it's like for example, you're falling asleep at the wheel and not knowing that your car is drifting off the road. Right. And it's like, well, now we have technology and sensors that tell us, oh, you're out of this lane. Oh, you know, you're off to the right or the left, et cetera. And so the good news, we have those, those indicators. But what we do is we say, look, we, we're going to help you become self-driving, you know, in other words, you can stay on the road and you you don't have to have your hands on the wheel all the time because guess what? We have processes in place that will enable you to be able to stay on the track you need to stay. And what you do is you, you deal with some of the environmental distractions that occur, but not to the point where you're correcting in a big way, but you're also reducing the number of corrections you have to make with respect to traveling from point A to point B. It's a great metaphor for what needs to happen, both in, in improving the processes, the systems, the feedback loops, but also in creating an environment in which people can flourish and do their best work. Are there certain industries that this works better in than others? When you look at your client roster, you've worked around the world in so many different capacities and so many different contexts. Is this limited to certain folks or does it work for everybody? If they're human, it'll work. And, you know, we say that because we developed it by design to be agnostic, you know, for that reason, you know, we, that's why we start with people first. We don't come in to be experts in your process because the, everything's changing. You know, that's where, that's where you differentiate, right? And, you know, you're in construction, if you're in digital media, if you're in IT, et cetera, we're not coming in as IT experts, et cetera. Although we will access IT experts if we need them. We will access marketing people as we need them. What we try to address is the alignment with respect to all these different disciplines and how they engage with each other 
to reduce the noise getting from point A to point B. Is this what it all amounts to at the end of the year? You mentioned something right at the beginning of our conversation that to really commit to this kind of work, to hire your team, engage with you, is almost a mindset type thing. The right leader who understands the need and is willing to take an honest look and willing to invest in this. Mindset's a tricky thing to identify. You can't run Google AdWords targeting an executive with the right mindset, right? right? You you can only target behaviors. Um, Even meeting folks at industry associations, doing the kind of thought leadership that you might do, doesn't necessarily have those people put up their hand and self-identify and say, hey, I need your help. Right. How do you do your own business development? How do you find clients that are a good fit for this? Theoretically, it's everybody. In reality, not everyone's willing or ready. How do you find them? We find them by basically, it has to do with trust. It's like us being on this show and someone says, you know, I'd like to learn more about what they're doing. Or we, we'll, we'll have a conversation, one of my colleagues will have a conversation with someone that says, you know, this is scary. You just described our situation. You know, our family. It's like you're following our, me yeah, around. Family, yeah, yeah, right. I yeah. said family, right? But it's, it's the, their family, that the company becomes their family. And it's, oh my gosh, do we want to let the secrets out? You know, do we want anybody to know the secrets? So, so I have to create a place. I have to create a safe space for those people. People who can trust me to, to, to keep, keep their, 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 uh, their secrets under wraps and do the best I can to help them convert it and make it make it possible for them to be visible to others and not have dirty laundry lying around all the place. So I help them clean up the things that they may be ashamed of, they may be fearful of, et cetera, because that's what it all boils down to at the end. You know, sure, it could be about a particular industry, but someone being willing for me to to be able to make discoveries and help them address those those issues. You know, that's, that's, that's what it all, that's what it really all amounts to. We need some help. We need a guy like you to come in and help us deal with these things because we've got a lot of political stuff going on and, and, you know, and everybody's not going around, but you know what? I, I just like the way you handle things. So I get, I get clients that come to me because they like the way I handle. I don't come in and I don't blame, you know, I said, blame the process. We're going to blame something, bring the process. Don't blame the humans. Humans need to figure things out because we, we evolved and we, you know, first of all, 150,000 years of existence, humans, right? Developmental psychology is only 150 years old. So that means we're still learning about ourselves and just just trying to figure things out. And then we threw in another uh, uh, factor, technology. Now you've got to figure out how to manage the balance between humans and technology in a bigger way, right? And it's not changing. It's getting bigger and bigger. So the challenge for us is this. How do we figure out how to maintain that balance? And then who's going to take the time to help human development grow, evolve in the new environment that we're in right now? Engineers are not, uh, and maybe it's a bad rap, engineers are not (laughs) typically known for empathy. Right. And yet this seems to be one of your core strengths. It's certainly what people get, a compassionate, trusted advisor who understands the humanity and is willing to hold people accountable is a unique and powerful right. combination. Right. Uh, take us back just a little into your development as a professional. Uh, how did you learn empathy and how did you begin to practice it? What, what, how does your own personal story factor into the work you're doing now? My wife, she was an incredible lady and she, she was a consultant too. And I say she was because she passed away a few years ago. 
but she touched so many people and she was connected to uh, so many lives in an incredible way. So if there, if there's anyone that that I give credit to in terms of the empathy, et cetera, was was her her persistence, her insistence. She threw me into the uh, the fire with this guy that was on the verge of bankruptcy. She threw me into the fire, saying, "Oh yeah, you can do this." You know, she threw me in the fire, this and that, and and so I give her so much credit. For, for, for doing that, because at the time it was like, well, gee, I don't know if I can do that. And why are you putting me in this situation? And, and of course, you say, no, you'll work it out. You'll figure it out. And so I did. And so, 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 so as a tribute to her, I mean, it's all the credit, you know, and it's a passion for me, as you know, now, as you can see now, it's a passion to help companies, to help people in general, to help students, you know, uh, graduate. You know, it's back to graduation. When your business does well, it's, to me, it's graduation. Wow. Oh, fantastic. What are we going to do next? Right? I had, you know, I had students that, that, that came in, you know, just beaten down from, from the education system as adults and having to recover their lives. I helped those individuals between 2008 and 2011 recover their lives that were in construction and all these other industries. That's why I say, what's the industry? You know, pick, pick, pick an industry. It doesn't matter, you know, because of my ability to understand technology, my ability to understand processes as it relates to, you know, engagement of people and that sort of thing. And, and my willingness to, to work and, and continue to grow and continue to work on myself. So a lot of it reflects my own you know, self-development and growth and then having good people around me like my team to 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 be vigilant about what's happening with them and what's happening with me. And and then, of course, the legacy that my, my wife has is like, you know what, that's that's what it's all about. Mm. It's a powerful and beautiful. So tribute. It's, it's like a life's work for me, to yeah. be honest with you. Yeah. Thank you. And, you know, I think so many of us with fragile male egos don't give enough credit to the women who believed in us when we didn't necessarily believe in ourselves. What was a mom, a spouse, a partner, oh, yeah, a friend, absolutely. Uh, a leader, somebody who looked past some of our shortcomings right. uh, and said, no, you, you got this. Right. Uh, you can be more than right. you think. And you know, you know, it's interesting, Adrian, sometimes that's all you need. Yes. That's, that's what I do in those companies is that I said, look what, you got this. Here's why. I tell them the why. And then I show them how. And I said, no. Do it, and I'll be nearby to help you as you need it. It's kind of like watching your son ride a bike for the first time, and he's like, you know, you can do it. You know, you don't need training wheels anymore. It's 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 about your mindset. It's about how you think. You have to believe and accept the fact that you can stay balanced enough to be able to stay on the bike. And and if you crash, you just get up and you just start all over again. Yeah. And so so being able to understand and and not interrupt. The learning process is so important and being able to support it and engage it and know where you are in the process. You know, that's what we do. We're at the start of a new year. This is the first show in our studio for 2020. Many folks use this somewhat artificial uh, calendar event to rethink, to look back, to look forward. As we move into this new year, what do you see from your perspective is the biggest issue facing companies, facing organizations in this next year, in this next decade, what are you paying attention to and, and what do other folks need to be thinking about? Well, that's a, that's a big question because we have a lot of things ha uh, happening right now, especially with, uh, you know, the retail industry, for example, is taking a bloodbath 
you know, and, you know, looking at the casualties since, you know, from 17, 18, 19. Brick and mortar retail. Brick and mortar. Is, brick and mortar retail. Yeah, but but those, yeah. are the, those are the the casualties, right? That's right. As leases become, are unsustainable. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Shopping centers have become almost mausoleums, you know? Right. <laughs> <In terms of, laughs> it's like <laughs> 3,000 years from now, it's going to be like touring ancient Egypt. Yeah, you know? yeah. Like, this right, was the right. pyramid so this is what it, to commerce here, right? in the 80s and 90s. So, so, so really what I see is this, you know, change is constant, right? We need to be, be willing, be, be courageous about thinking about what's next and figuring out what's next. You know what I mean? Because that's, that's where the challenge is. That's where the challenges are, the problems are. And so whatever it is that you're doing, you know, technology is not going away. Artificial intelligence is there, right? All those challenges we have is, is you know, they exist. And so it's more important for us to focus on the things that are most important to do. And that's to pay attention to your business. Know that your business is going to change. So prepare yourself for change and be willing to take a chance. You know what? Call me. You know, if you want some insight, call me. You know, it's not a problem. I can talk to you. Um, but what I say that is ask for help. And I think that's the biggest challenge of most companies is you're not going to you're not going to have your finger on the pulse of everything that's moving in your industry. You need to ask questions. You need to be inquisitive. I'm constantly learning myself to be better for my clients and to be faster. You know, 90 days is a conservative number for me in terms of days in which I expect a turn, return on investment for you. I'm looking. My goal is 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 30 days. 30 days. You know, which means like, look, you know, start where you are and then try to move to where you want to be and ask for help. One of the things I tell my clients, I said, look, you know what? What's the most important thing you do right now? Get your planning done now, meaning that the, this week, don't wait until the end of January. Don't wait until the end of February to give your team, a, a you know, a, an agenda and say, this is what we're going to achieve for the rest of the year. Because, you know, fourth quarter is a bloodbath. You know, everybody's hacking and slashing and trying to get the best. Try to figure out how to deliver in September. Yeah. So, so you use that fourth quarter to prepare. But if you're, you're basically giving your team the baton in, in, at the end of the first quarter, and then you've got now they have technically the second and the and the third quarter to prepare themselves. The fourth quarter is let's just figure out how we can get it done. That's why we have Cyber Mondays and Black Fridays and Purple Tuesday and Green Wednesdays, et cetera. We have all those days because we're trying to recover to hit the number. Start early with the number. Best time to plan for Q1 is Q3. The next best time is today. You got it. Fascinating conversation. Alex Devereaux is founder and principal consultant with the Devereaux Group. You can find them online at thedevereauxgroup.com. And I invite you to accept Alex's invitation. Call him. Uh, every leader needs a confidential, trusted advisor in their corner, someone they can be honest with and someone who can come in and help their people get the most out of themselves and out of their work. Now, now I have a copy out here. The best way to reach me is through my email yeah. address because there's so many robocalls. Right. It's the modern day version of call me. Is, you know, send me an email, an Instagram DM, whatever it takes. Right. Absolutely. I'm in LinkedIn. So you know what? Send me a LinkedIn. You want to connect with me? Be happy to connect with you. That's a good way to, to start the process. And I know you're continuing to, to work globally uh, and you're also developing 
more and more folks here in the Valley. So it's just great to get to know you, to to have you in my corner as a as a friend and a resource. Thank you. I want to thank you for joining us in the studio today to share your insights. Well, Adrian, I'd like to say that I, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you incredible insights in terms of, you know, the, the, the quality of conversation that we've had here. And, and so I just want to, you know, tip my hat to you and say, you know, I really, I'm honored to be here and have this opportunity to share, you know, your, your client's attention, your, your, your audience attention. And, uh, and I just said, well, thank you. Thank you to everybody that's listening to me. Thank you. I appreciate the kind words. For all of us here at phx.fm, this is Dr. Adrian McIntyre. We'll see you next time on Valley Business Radio. 